On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchando. Hi, everybody. It is time for a Second Shot Sit-Down. And gosh, this is one, I have to tell you, I couldn't record the intro while I was doing the interview because I was worried that I would fangirl too much and I needed to kind of keep my cool, right? (laughs) So I figured I would record the intro outside of the interview. Hey everybody, it's Jenny here. I am thrilled about our big get for the interview today. It is Cynt Marshall, um, Cynthia Marshall, the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Um, I mean, if you guys have heard anything about her career, you know she was a longtime executive at AT&T. She was the first woman to lead the team's front office. And you remember this happened back in 2018 when I mean, the Mavericks were really under fire for a host of complaints, a toxic work environment, etc. Um, so she was basically hired to turn it all around. If I mean, this this made national news, and we were really excited to get this interview with her. I found her to be um, delightful, fascinating, interesting, with just such an interesting business story and also interesting personal story. So I really hope that you enjoy this interview and just sink your teeth into it like I did. Here you go. Hi, everybody. I'm Jenny Anchando, and I am absolutely delighted to introduce you to our next guest. It is Cynthia Sint Marshall, CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Hello, how are you? I'm so glad that we could have this chat. I am just fabulous. How are you doing, my sister? Oh my gosh, I'm great. I've had, you have to say, I've had a lot of fun sort of researching for this interview and learning a little bit more about your past because we, we, you know, we learned when you came about as uh, CEO of the Mavericks, we learned about sort of modern day scent who's out here in the world. What we didn't learn as much about was your upbringing, your childhood. So um, take us back, take us back to Birmingham, Alabama, what your what your childhood was like and what it was like growing up uh, as you. Oh, I love this. You did your homework <laughs> you know about Birmingham. A lot yes. of people don't know about Birmingham. Uh, so that's where it all began. Uh, my parents are from Birmingham, Alabama. I was born there. Uh, they left Birmingham when I was three months old uh, because they did not want uh, their children. There were four of us at the time. Now there are six. But they didn't want their children growing up in the Jim Crow segregated South. Mm-hmm. And so my dad had a sister in California. So uh, they got on a train when I was three months old and moved to the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. Uh, if you know your civil rights history, which I know you do, mm-hmm. uh, there's a church, the 16th Street Baptist Church, where four little black girls lost their lives in a bombing in 1963. Uh, That church was one of two churches that my mother uh, grew up in. 
Uh, so uh, the whole civil rights uh, movement, the 16th Street Baptist Church, uh, those are part of that, that. Those are my roots. Wow. And so there's not a day goes by that I don't think about those four girls and the sacrifices they made so that my mother's four girls and two boys uh, could have a, uh, the life that we have right now. So mm. deep in my roots, deep in my roots. Yeah, I, I have chills when, when you describe it that way, when you describe it as the sacrifice they made. Because was that really the, the I mean, we, we've, we've all heard about that bombing and just the tragedy that struck that community. Was that really the breaking point for your family and for your mother saying, you know what, this is it? Well, it, it was the, my mom had left prior to that. And so it was one of those moments. And I, I love to hear her talk about it where she says, you know, she just knows that she made the right decision to move, but it also uh, really impressed upon her kind of what was going on at the time and the role that she and my dad and all of us really still had to play uh, in moving things along in this nation that we still had a lot of work to do. So that was back in 1963. And so uh, when they moved, we moved to the Easter Hill Public Housing Projects in Richmond, California. So sometimes when people hear that I grew up in Richmond, they go, Richmond, Virginia? Uh, I'm like, no, Richmond, California, the San Francisco Bay Area. So in the East Bay, we grew up in the projects, uh, saw a lot of things happening uh, in the projects that you can well imagine. Uh, but I was always taught that uh, education mattered and zip code didn't. Uh. And so... I know you know this, when I was 11 years old, uh, some chaos broke out in our family, and I saw my father actually shoot a man in the head. Fortunately, it wasn't fatal. Um, uh, the young man lost his eye, uh, but he had approached our house, and uh, my father actually had to shoot back in self-defense because I was standing on my father's right side when this young man pulled out a pistol and pointed it down to my father's right side at me. And that was only because I didn't want to stay in the back room when all this commotion broke out in our house. And I kind of sneaked up the hallway uh, to see what was happening, even though my mom told us all to stay in the room. And that's when my father realized that I wasn't in the back room anymore, but was standing right there in the pathway of a bullet. Uh, he shot back in, in defense of me. And you can imagine the chaos that broke out in our family. Fortunately, it wasn't fatal. It was self-defense, uh, but it was still a lot of chaos. And so we were sequestered in the house as kids for safety purposes for quite a while, but my mom figured out a way for me to go to school. She had a uniformed police officer take me to school every day after that in the seventh grade. Uh, so he'd sometimes you know, ride the bus with me in his police uniform, uh, Officer Daryl Prater, I will never forget him, or he'd take me in his police car. So I even laughed now and said I had secret service when I was 11 years old. <laughs> You're used to being protected. You know, I think about that, though, and think about the transformation, because initially I think people hear, wow, you know, they, they left the Jim Crow South. But it wasn't like you left and all of a sudden life was glorious and easy, clearly, uh, considering what you then went on to deal with. You had to have understood at age 11 a little bit of the magnitude of what was going on around you and the fact that the, the sacrifices the family had to make it just even in order to get you to school. I'm sorry, something is actually going on on my screen here. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. We're pre-recording, so it's all good. Recording. Yeah, something is actually going on on my screen here. Can you see it? You probably can't see it, We can't see, it, see right? it, but what is it? Is stuff popping up like um Yeah, it popped windows? up. It was just like team viewer. Okay, I'm okay. So so we'll start back. So we'll go yeah. back to your, your saying life wasn't uh, a bit yeah, of roses well, for. I guess it was, you know, just this idea that I think people hear, you know, 
If they didn't know your story, they would think, oh gosh, okay, great, they got out, they went to California, life was great after that. But it really, it, continu it continued to be a struggle. Oh, it absolutely continued to be a struggle. We grew up uh, poor and, you know, at the time, and, you know, my parents always stressed education. And so that's why it's so important to me now that no matter what your zip code is, you should have access to a great education. And so my mother always, I, I tell people, she put two books in my hand, a math book in one hand and a Bible in the other. And said, if you keep your head in these two books, you will get out. And and growing up, I didn't know exactly what out meant. Uh, but later, I, I realized it was out of poverty, and it was that you know I'd have an ac I had had have a chance to go to college and all that, which I did. I mean, the village um, they, they they wrapped their arms around me. Uh, I, I told you about when you know what happened when I was 11 years old. But four years later, my parents divorced, and so my father left us with very little. Uh, he left a mattress for me and my younger sister to sleep on in this big deluxe unit in the projects. And I remember being all upset about it. I was 15 years old. Uh, we had to flee our house that summer from domestic violence. And my mom's prayer was that we would make it back home before school started because education was everything. And so a week before school started, we made it back home. Uh, we didn't have anything. My father had taken our clothes, all kind of stuff. And my mother just said, the Lord will take care of us. And we had to focus on school and everything would be okay. And You're... so I went back to school and I had a big brace on my nose where my father had broken my nose that summer and three teachers and a principal embraced me, embraced my mom, found out what was going on in our family. I love educators, I love them. And they put their arms around me and the village said, this kid is going to college. And I did. Oh gosh, let's just end it right there. You know, that that is, um, that's powerful. There are, you know, Education is afforded to our children. It's a, it's a priority. I love that your mom, despite all of the chaos that was clearly around her, impressed that upon you. I would love to hear your message for kids who are in a volatile home situation, who are struggling, who are feeling like there is no way you know, out, so to speak. What's your message to them with regard to just taking advantage of the education that's out there for them? I, okay, so I love that. I have a message to them and I have a message to those who educate them and who are around them. Uh, the message to them is keep your head in that book. Focus on what is right there in front of you. There are some circumstances and some conditions that you absolutely uh, cannot uh, control, uh, but you can control your motivation. You can control your actions in terms of getting your schoolwork done, doing your homework. You can control what you respond to uh, in terms of listening uh, to the caring adults uh, in your life. And no one can take away what's in your head and what is in your heart. And if you persevere and have the right kind of support system, uh, you can make it out of any bad situation. So that's what I say to the kids. The four words that I live by are dream, focus, pray, and act. Always have big dreams. I had dreams going growing up even in the projects mm -hmm. have big dreams focus and handle your business in school dream focus pray and I pray so some people you know they do meditate whatever sure. but you need something to keep you centered even as a kid our, our kids are going through so much in terms of isolation depression you name it uh, so find something that centers you and then you have to take action some things you have to do yourself uh, people, other people won't do them for you. Other people won't do your homework. Other people won't absorb uh, the material you're supposed to absorb when you're in class. 
If you're involved in extracurricular activities, you have to put forth the effort. So that's the message to the children. They are resilient. The message to the adults around them is to create a permanent and safe environment for our children. All they need is safety. They need permanence. They need caring adults in their lives to see the potential and to keep them on the right track and to make sure they have access to the resources that they need uh, to have. For example, like the situation we're in right now when so many kids are uh, having to uh, learn at home. We need to make sure they have the technology and the resources and the infrastructure uh, so that they won't fall uh, behind. And so that's what we get to do as big people is to make sure these little people have what they need. Oh, I couldn't agree more. That's a that's a motivational message for sure for both ends, for the kids and for the adults. I understand you recently did this civil rights tour with some of your family members just to see how things have changed since your family left Alabama all those years ago. That had to have been a transfer transformative, you know, visit and experience. Can you tell me what that was like? Oh, it was so touching. So we went back and the day in and of itself was touching because it was August 21st and uh, so of last year. And it was uh, actually the the day of the anniversary of my daughter who passed away. Mm. So it was one of, and, and I named my daughter after my mom, Carolyn. Okay. And well, Carolyn with the K. So I was with my mom on that day and we just said we wanted to do something special. And my mom had wanted to go back home. She hadn't been there for a while, but she, it was just, it, it was just impressed upon her to go and just actually spend time with some of her brothers and sisters, pray for them, all of that. And so, so me, I went with her, one of my sisters went and we ended up getting a civil rights tour for about 48 hours. We visited the 16th street Baptist church. I actually have a picture where I'm standing on the steps uh, of that church. We went to the civil rights, uh, the new civil rights museum there in Birmingham. We went to the park and we saw the statues of the dogs and the fire hoses and all that. It was an incredible experience. And then my mom took me to where she grew up. Oh my goodness, 3220th, 30th Court North in, Bur- North in Birmingham, Alabama. And she took me over to Pastor uh, Fred Shuttlesworth Church and showed me where her friend was standing when she watched the KKK put a bomb in the church. Um, and then she told, showed us where she lived. I mean, it was incredible. Then they took me to the Birmingham jail where Dr. King wrote his famous letter, letter from the Birmingham jail, which is one of my favorite pieces. And so my uncle talked about his experience having lived through all of that, when my grandmother told him as a teenager he couldn't march uh, and he couldn't go and participate in some of the activities, but he did anyway and ended up in that same jail. And so by the time I left, I was just so full because even though, of course, um, we were uh, close to the civil rights movement, I mean, as close as you can be being you know, right. in, in California, but still trying to fight for justice and all that, to actually walk those streets of Birmingham and hear those stories from my mom and her brother, uh, uh, my uncle Sam Estelle and my aunt Janetta Evans, for for, the, Janetta, for them to tell us those stories, it was incredible. And it just, it fired me up. Mm-hmm. It fired me up for the fight that I know we still have in this country. And this is pre-George Floyd, this is pre all that. But I knew then, you know, I gotta do more, I just have to do more around diversity, around equity, inclusion, social justice, just promoting awareness for the times that we're living in. And so I just actually left there pretty fired up with an even deeper resolve 
uh, to make sure that we have a country that's all about uh, justice and all about equity and all about inclusion. And you know, you have been a trailblazer since you were a, a girl, really. I mean, like, let's talk about you becoming class president back in the day at your high school. That had to have been such a big moment. Uh, talk about that, what the, you know, your decision-making process and, you know, stepping into leadership in that way and really making your mark as the first black president at your school. Okay, so here's what most people don't know, because I just don't talk about it that much. So I have two sisters who graduated three years before I did from high school. Mm -hmm. And so we were sitting in their graduation ceremony. And I remember looking at my mom because there were two white guys on the stage. And I was in the ninth grade and I looked at my mom and I said, can a black girl be senior class president? She said, of course, you can do whatever you want to do. I said, can a black girl be student body president? She said, yes, because I'm looking at these two guys up there and I'm in the ninth grade. And I said, okay, I gotta get one of my buddies because when we graduate, we're going to do that. And so then I found out that hadn't ever happened before, okay? And so as the good Lord would have it, when it was time for us to run for office as juniors, I got my buddy, Terry, and I said, okay, I need you to run for student body president. I'm gonna run for senior class president. We gotta do this. Of course, we're gonna help the school but then we have to stand on that stage as two black girls for the first time ever. Now I was 16 years old at the time. <laughs> wow. She said, okay. And so we did it and we won. And it was a lot of work, okay? And I'm used <laughs> to a lot of work. But it, it was so much fun, but you know, it was interesting. And I remember this one time we were having this uh, uh, kind of uh, student council meeting in, in our library at school and all of these diverse people, and I actually went to a very diverse high school. I mean, at the time, I'd say we had probably equal numbers of African-American, white, uh, Asian, not a lot of Hispanics. They do now, but not a lot at the time. And so all of a sudden, our student student council meetings became very diverse. And some people didn't want to let my buddies in the meeting because they weren't, quote unquote, on the student council because it was just, you know, the friends of all these previous people who had been in charge. And so I remember we had like a little ruckus a little protest wow. where everybody was saying no we all want to come in so we have to open up the whole library let everybody in and it was fabulous and from that moment on we had a very diverse student council uh it was fun and we even coming in you know that that night graduation night uh was fabulous uh, i remember my principal uh lawrence chapman mr chapman said it was the liveliest graduation <laughs> We had ever been in because we were just having a good time. Did you realize at 16 years old what you were doing this for fun because you just hadn't seen it happen? Did you understand the greater impact that this would mean for your school, possibly for years and decades to come? Actually, I did not at the time. I did not. And a lot of times when you're the first, you don't know you're, well, you know you're the first, but you don't know it's like a really big deal. And I remember my uh, high school graduation night, and it was actually a, a rough night because more chaos and, and violence was occurring uh, in our home. And so I was kind of afraid to leave my class in because of just some things that, some threats that were made. And I remember uh, my uh, business ed teacher, uh, Mr. Patrick Rotelli, and then Mr. Chapman and so some other teachers saying, sent, they opened the doors to the big auditorium and said, lead your class in. This is historic. We need you to lead the class in. And my buddy Terry was with me and we just stood there and we kind of froze. And, and normally we're pretty outgoing and all that. And so we were all teary eyed and all the teachers were crying and they said, leave the class in. Mm -hmm. We have your back, 
will be with you forever. And I'll never forget that. And I have called up on those teachers often. They said, we'll be with you forever. My, my ninth grade English teacher was standing there, Mr. Michael Parrott. And they said, Sam, take the class in. This is your class. And we walked in and we hit that stage. And you know, you have to practice, you know, all like four or 500 <laughs> names and all that. And we nailed it, we nailed it. We didn't mess up a name, <laughs> we were ready. We were ready, but it was historic. It, it got a little emotional there. And I think the teachers and the faculty, they were more emotional than probably I was, but it was, it was historic. And I guess we've been blazing trails ever since then. Well, yeah, because you know, they, they, they I can understand they're being emotional because they really understood the magnitude of it. Whether, whereas I think as a teenager, we, we don't necessarily always know what, what we do, even if we, you know, it's with good intention, we don't know you know, the great magnitude, whereas the, the teachers, the administrators really knew what an agent for change that was. And I want to talk about another first, which is so fun, so cool. Um, you were a cheerleader at Berkeley. In fact, the first African-American cheerleader, as I understand it, and also the first woman in your sorority house um, who's African-American. So there, it was like you started and you just kept blazing trails. Was that intentional or was it what, you know, where you said, hey mom, I don't see anybody who looks like me, I'm gonna go try, or did it just happen? I will tell you it just happened, and, and let me tell you why it just happened. Because I was taught to have big dreams, mm -hmm. handle my business, be involved in activities. This is what the village taught, taught me. I always had teachers, educators, community people, my track coach. Uh, I mean, just people who always were involved in my life saying, you gotta go do this. You gotta go do that. Get involved in this. I wanna put you in this. Oh, I need you to lead this. And I would just say, okay. And so by the time I got to college, I just said, okay, I'm supposed to be involved in activities. I decided I didn't wanna run track because I had run track previously. And I was there on an academic scholarship. I had gotten five scholarships to the college, full scholarships to the college of my choice. And so I said, okay, I gotta get involved in something. And when it was time to go out to be a cheerleader, that's what I was used to. And I did it. The first time I went out, I did not make it. And so that's always my message to kids too, is you have to just keep trying. Uh, I didn't make it and I said, okay. So the next year, uh, by the time I was in my, I was pledging my sorority and all that then, I said, okay, I'm going out again. And I made it. <laughs> and I didn't realize, I did not realize I was the first. I mean, we had like cheerleaders and all that, but I was truly like one of the, uh, I ended up being the head song leader, dancer, all that. I didn't know we hadn't had an African-American until uh, a lot of people started coming up to me, a lot of the elderly alumni crying and touching my big Afro and all that in a very loving kind of way and saying how proud they were that I had made wow. the squad. And that's when I found out, and I was head cheerleader too, and so, we were uh, we were doing some good things and we had changed some of the music and all that. So first they told her no, then they said, dang, this girl's so good. We're gonna make her the head cheerleader. Oh, what what a fun story. Um, if, if you're comfortable talking about it, I would love to discuss. Uh, we know that you have quite the storied career at AT&T. Just, you know, so we talk about sort of the academic success and the, and the fun and the, the, you know, spirited success. Let's talk about career. Um, as I understand it, there was a scenario where you were going to be you know, offered the position of becoming an officer with AT&T and initially declined it. If you feel comfortable, can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding that? Oh, I absolutely feel comfortable about it. So um, I'm in San Francisco, of course. I mean, that's where you know, I grew up in the Bay Area and it's a uh, you know, I have, it's, I guess it's about my 19th year, because I was almost 40, uh, with the company, and I remember getting the call. 
the call, mm-hmm. uh, telling me that um, I had been elected, you know, to be an officer of the corporation. And the, my boss at the time starts telling me, unfortunately, all these things that she wanted me to change, uh, that I couldn't be called Cent anymore, that I call me Cynthia. And then she said she wanted me to change my hairstyle and my outfits. And so she had left a magazine, because I was at home when, when I got the call. She said she had left a magazine on my uh, desk on kind of what she wanted me to wear, what she wanted my hair to look like, which I'm a black woman, my hair's gonna do what my hair does, okay? And it wouldn't do what she wanted it to do. I mean, I couldn't have her hair. And so she gave me this laundry list. She said I couldn't use words like blessed, uh, use words like lucky, which, and that's when it started to go a little bit south. Uh, she didn't want me to laugh so much. She wanted me to stop being so happy. And if you know my life story, you know why I am so happy. And there's a joy that operates down deep inside of me that has nothing to do with anybody else except the good Lord. And so she just started telling me things she wanted me to change. And so she said, okay, so that's just my advice on the things you're going to have to do. And so what do you want me to tell them? And and my husband could hear the, the my side of the conversation. And so he knew I was getting uh, this promotion offer. And because, in fact, when she said she wanted me to cut my hair, I said, I'm not going to do that. My hair won't do that. And my husband's in the back like, oh, you can go to my barber. I mean, he, he wants me to take this job. Yeah, right, right. right. He, want, he wants that job for the family. It's like, oh, we've been waiting for this for like all 20, <laughs> almost 20 years, right? And so, but what I ended up telling her, I said, you know what? I'm not going to take this job. And I was as sincere as I can be. I said, okay, so I need you to help me figure out how to tell them no because you're asking me to fundamentally change who I am. Coaching is one thing, responding to feedback is one thing. I'm coachable, I respond to feedback, I'm a continuous learner, I always wanna grow. But when you fundamentally try to change who I am, when you tell me I can't say blessed, when you tell me I'm too nice to people, when you tell me I can't laugh, when you tell me I'm too loud, uh, we're having a problem here because you're actually telling me you don't want me to be the black woman. That wow. I am. You're telling me you don't want me to be my authentic self. And she said she agreed with me. She said, I agree. I don't think you fit the profile. <gasps> and so she helped me come up with some words. So we were in agreement. We were aligned. Okay. So she helped me come up with some words that she could tell them going back. Because I told them I'm a vice president in this company. I have made it further than I ever thought I would. I am so blessed. I have a great team. I love my job. There goes that those I- words, love and blessed, all that darn positivity. Yes. And I said, so help me. And so, you know what? She helped me. She helped me craft the message that she could take back to them. And so then we hung up. I said, I'm not going to do it. She said she thought I had made the right decision. And then a few minutes later, I got a call from the big guy. And he said, uh, the head of the company. And he said, sent. And he stressed sent, not Cynthia. Mm. He said, let's start over. And he said, the person who the board said who they want to be an officer of this corporation, the person whose office I visited in San Francisco with your signs and about being blessed and all that stuff you have on your desk. That is the person that's getting stuff done in San Francisco. That's the person that's getting stuff done for this company. I don't want you to change anything. You keep your music, you do all of that. We are promoting scent to be an officer of this corporation. He said, I apologize, so let's do this all over again. And so I accept it. I accept it. Wow. You know, few women or people, I guess, would have the confidence to stand up for who they know they are 
and to tell somebody when faced with a promotion like that, no. And, and, and aren't you glad you did? Because how could you go through I, faking it? Exactly. I'm glad I did. But I will tell you, I was I was nervous about it because I thought, OK, so I'm telling them no. So what are they going to think? Are they going to say, OK, well, that's just the job we have for her. So now we don't have the other one because we are. I mean, so she's got to go mm. or is she, I don't I didn't know how to push. I didn't know if they would see it as pushback. I, I just didn't know. But what I did know is I had to be my authentic self. And I think and I think part of it had to do was when I first started with the company and my very first week in the company, my boss's boss told me to take my braids out because I came to the company with long uh, braids. And so she told me to take my braids out, get rid of my red shoes. So she basically transformed me. That was my first week. I was 21 years old and I didn't know any better. Mm. I went home. I stayed up all night with my mom, taking my braids out. My sister had to bring out some shoes. I mean, I had to like totally change. And so I think I just had a flashback to that. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing that again. They got to accept me for who I am. And for the most part in my career, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm telling you two stories like that, but I could tell you a bajillion stories where I was accepted for who I was. And maybe that's why I finally felt comfortable at that moment being who I was because I had evolved, the culture had evolved, and I felt like I was in a company where I could actually do that. And that's key. You have to be in a place where you actually feel like you can take that risk and do it. Well, I did, and it paid off. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. And what a great example. I just hope that other women who feel uh, feel that their culture is attacked in the workplace. Well, you know, legal notes aside, because listen, we know that that's that's not you can't do that. That's just wrong. Right. It's just wrong. It's wrong. In certain instances, it's illegal. So I hope that people hear that come, you know, coming from you and the example and how it turned out for you. And I want to, you know, you talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. We look back to 2018. I mean, you have been a dynamic force with the Dallas Mavericks and also a dynamic force for our community and an example of what a black woman is doing in such a high profile position. So what have you, you know, we're a couple years in, what has changed since you started? Um, how is the organization different, if at all? Oh, I love it. I love my Mavs. I, I love the team. I love the staff. Uh, it's a great culture. What has changed, uh, number one, is the makeup of our leadership team. Uh, when I got there, we didn't have any women or people of color in permanent uh, executive uh, positions. And so now my staff is almost 50% women and 47, my leadership team is 50% women and 47% people of color. Uh, so that's very different. Uh, we have uh, more diversity uh, in all aspects than we've ever had uh, before. Uh, we have uh, some values that we truly live out. I, I just love my team. I mean, from, from my boss on down to this, the, the, the person who is securing, you know, who's, who's at the front door every day, the security person, uh, we're living our, our values that uh, I brought uh, and put in place when I got there and they spell crafts. So it's character, respect, authenticity. So, you know, that's big for me, fairness, teamwork and safety, both physical and emotional safety. Uh, we live those values. I told our team when I got there, these would not, these values will not just be on the walls, but they will operate in the halls. The decisions we make, the people we hire, the way we communicate, the way we are internally, everything will reflect uh, these values. And so I, we're living uh, those values. 
Uh, we have uh, employee resource groups in place so that people can ha really have a sense of uh, belonging and, and they're just doing great things in the community. The Mavs have always been great in the community. So we've uh, we've stepped that up. And then we have a big focus on, you know, we had a 100 day plan that focused on zero tolerance, a women's agenda, uh, and a, a complete cultural transformation. So we have a holistic diversity and inclusion program that includes suppliers, our talent, uh, how we uh, spend our charitable dollars, all that sort of true focus on that. And we focus on both diversity mm. and inclusion. So not just the numbers, mm. but make, not just counting the numbers, but making the numbers count. Uh, and so there's a big difference in diversity and inclusion. So we focus on both. Um, and then um, uh, we had an agenda just around operational effectiveness, making sure there was equity and pay and all of that. Uh, so a lot has changed. We executed on about 200 initiatives as far as oh, that wow. 100 day plan. And so a lot has changed. And so here's what I love the most, our workplace promise, and we're living it out every day. Our workplace promise is every voice matters and everybody belongs. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, I am proud of the speak up culture that we have. Our people have a voice. The level doesn't matter. I had a one-on-one -on -one with every single person in the organization when I got there, which is what I had to do to carry out the mandate that my boss gave me was to transform the culture. You have to talk to your people. As a leader, I think there are just a few things you have to do as a leader. You have to listen to your people, you have to learn from your people, and you have to love your people. If you listen to them, learn from them, and love them, those three L's, then you can lead them. And so that's all I've been trying to do, and our workplace promise is every voice matters and everybody belongs, and people have been speaking up, especially like in, in the times we're living in now with COVID and social injustice and all that. The voices are speaking up loud and clear and we're listening and it's a great place to work. It's a great place to work. You I think are, it is. You I think are you a maybe they'll say that dynamo. Too. No, you're a dynamo. I mean, you know, it was it's funny because you answered the question that was next in my mind. I was thinking, you know, what about for the CEOs who who like they have the best of intentions. They want to have diversity and inclusion, but they don't like <laughs> their frame of reference is smaller. Well, for whatever reason, they're not able to get there. But I think what you just said is so on point. And, and it seems that in implementing some of those strategies, it will happen if you're open to it. Um, you have so to be open to it. And you have to have some external advisors because we put together a Dallas Mavericks Advisory Council, about 27 people that cut across all aspects of the community. And we bring them together quarterly and they listen to our business plans. They, we talk about issues. Uh, they're, um, uh, they're the eyes and ears for us. They bring us things. Sometimes they tell us some things we may not want to hear uh, because I thought it was really important. And I, I led one at AT&T to have those external voices uh, with you always. And so these people have uh, stepped up greatly in the community. So uh, I get a lot of credit uh, that I probably don't deserve because when I look at the fabulous people on our team, these external advisors, uh, my boss, a lot of people uh, have had a hand in the transformation of this team. Yeah, yeah, from, from the outside looking in, it, there does seem to have been a transformation. Last thing that I wanna chat with you about is, you know, the, the point of this story is for our national coverage for Nextstar about Black History Month, and I would love to just hear since perspective on what Black History Month means and why it's important for everybody to take note. Oh, I love that. I think Black History Month for me uh, is really about taking the time to recognize uh, the significance that black people have paid, uh, uh, played in building our country. 
Uh, you know, we'll fo- sometimes people focus on the fact that, you know, we built the White House and all that. Uh, we built more than the White House. Mm. Uh, we have a, we have played a significant uh, role in all types of industries. I used to teach my kids a lot about Lewis Howard Latimer, who, in my opinion, uh, with the Alexander Graham Bell, actually invented the telephone. And so there's a lot of black history out there that I think uh, during the month of February, you can take the time and really uh, study that history and learn about uh, people who actually had a hand in different industries. Uh, learn about the, the, the contributions that black people have made uh, in this country and are still making. Uh, so I think it's just a time to step back and be proud and then to also realize that there is still more to do. There are still so many places where we are not represented and we need to be. If we wanna be successful as a country, and we are, it's the greatest place on the planet, but if we wanna be more successful, if we wanna do more uh, to make sure this is a great place for all, and that's what I focus on with our workplace, making it a great place uh, to work for all, uh, we've gotta embrace all cultures. And so February is the month that we've decided to kinda embrace the black culture and to learn more about it and to uh, see where we are and do a little gap analysis and see what more uh, has to be done. And so it's a time where the whole nation uh, gets to do that. And of course, we don't wanna just limit uh, the the education to just that one month, uh, but that's the month that's been set aside. And so that's what we do. Uh, we, We learn about our history and we learn about our culture and then we decide what more can we do uh, to make sure that this country uh, is working for everybody and that we are truly carrying out what is in that constitution. Sent Marshall, CEO of the Mavericks, thank you. I'll, I'll loop it back around to what you were punished for before and say that we are blessed to have been able to visit with you and learn a little bit more about your heart and, and your life and your leadership style. Thank you again so much. This is wonderful. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. And thanks for uh, letting me visit with you. And my kids will love this because I got a chance to mention them too. Wasn't she phenomenal? I just found her, gosh, her life story to be very interesting. I found it to be very inspiring. She's a woman who's had many different second shots. And so I hope that you felt like me, you know, like you could kind of relate to her in some way. You guys, if this podcast brings you any value at all, I really just, you know, if this episode was impactful, I encourage you to share it with somebody, shoot them a text, um, gosh, post it to your Instagram stories, tag us, you know that we will repost you, um, share it on Facebook. We put out this content, we spend the time in this content in an effort to inspire people and to share stories of hope and stories that have depth and stories that have meaning um, and just, uh, you know, really bring a little bit of a light to somebody. So if, if you know somebody that you think this podcast could help, then please do share it. Also, since Heath isn't here to shame everybody, I guess I have to do it for him. Um, if this is helpful at all to you, we don't ask anything. We do very minimal ads on this space. And so the best thing you can do to help us is just to leave a rating or review. And what that does is in the podcast algorithm, it helps more people to be able to see our content and to be inspired by these interviews. Um, these guests are so generous with their time. And especially now that we're getting some of these bigger guests, we want, um, you know, we, we want 
it to be worth their while and for everybody to be able to hear the beautiful stories that they're telling. So leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to. We are forever grateful for everybody who's a part of this community. If you want to connect with us, you know you can find us in the Second Shot Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash groups slash Second Shot. And you can also search Second Shot Podcast on Instagram and we post all the episodes there. We hope everybody is doing well. We send hugs and loves to all of you and we'll chat with you next week.